For scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, the, the Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but, the, but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head of, into Christ, and whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the grace and peace of Christ uh, be here among us, in us, and guide us in our worship, and now particularly in our time of study. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll continue our study here of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a rather troubled church, a church in conflict. My initial reflections on this passage uh, took me back to some of the words of Brother Paul when he preached his last two sermons here, and that he kind of suggested that uh, this young group of pastors put him with the tougher books, the tougher sections of 1 Corinthians when he stopped in. And I, I told Brother James this morning, if that were true, we'd have him preaching this passage. Uh, this one, I think, is one of the, the really tough passages in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the, the good part about it is I think the central message of the passage is quite simple and clear. Uh, how the Apostle Paul gets there in his arguments are rather complex and difficult. And understanding uh, the, both the historical context, the context of the church at Corinth, adequately to be able to understand what Paul is explaining here in a few points uh, has been rather challenging. So, I do invite your, your prayerful and thoughtful participation in our study of this passage. I'm quite certain I'm not going to answer all your questions. I might actually uh, create more than you had when you came. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a little bit of clarity 
as to one of the key points in this passage, which I think is the priority of building when the congregation gathers. The main thing that is to happen when God's people get together, just like we are this morning, is that everything that takes place here would edify, would build up, and would equip each of you to be the people of God, not just today, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday as you go back out into the world. So I'd like to begin by reading this text, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll be reading a fairly lengthy passage here, verses 1 through 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, doubtless, many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves... Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise... If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, signs, tongues are a sign, not for believers, 
but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Our Father, we have confidence that in your word you have spoken to the needs of our hearts. In this specific case, you've also spoken to the needs in our assembly, our congregation. We ask that your spirit would be present so that we could understand with our minds that you would teach us, you would edify us, you would build us up so that Christ could be honored in our lives, in our worship, in our words, and in our actions. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This part of the letter turns now from a powerful and compelling look at love. Love as the central component of Christianity. Chapter 13, the love chapter. And he moves from that beautiful passage to another area of church life that is in chaos, that is disordered. And he seeks to give direction to this particular area of chaos by calling them to consider how love would shape the activities of their worship, their assembly time, what they do when they get together. And basically says that a good understanding of love requires that when you gather together, everything that is done, said, spoken, would be pointed toward one thing, which is building up the other. And I'm going to tell you at the outset, uh, in my reading recently, especially about the issues of worship in the church and styles of worship and things we do in worship, it seems that one of the, the big battles that's going on in the Christian world, uh, specifically here in the West, is the question about how we worship, what kind of music we use, what kinds of activities are to take place in worship. And I'm increasingly hearing people say that so much of the Western church now wants to come to a worship service for what they get out of it. They want to be entertained, they want to be amused, and they want to get something. So they're coming for something. This passage says we come to be confronted. We come to be shaped in our thinking, to be informed in our minds. And this narciss narcissistic desire to be able to feel something dramatic or something sensational uh, should be kind of pressed aside. And the gifts, even the good gifts of the Holy Spirit that give us that kind of rush or wow from a supernatural manifestation of something are clearly secondary to clear communication, teaching, exhortation, unpacking of truth that engages the mind and gives, shapes, gives shape to the thought and in that way to the life and the worship of God's people. In this particular context, the context at the Church of Corinth, the big wow factor 
is tongues. And everybody is wanting tongues. And it sounds that there's a, a parallel to what's happening in, uh, around the Lord's Supper. People are bringing their picnic baskets in the Lord's Supper. They're sitting down having these big feasts. They're not paying attention to everybody else. Some are getting drunk and some are uh, having these massive feasts and other parts of the body of Christ have nothing. They're not coming discerning the body, Paul said. And the same thing is going on here. There are certain people coming who believe they have this gift of tongues, and we'll talk about what that is here in a few moments. They have this gift of tongues, and they recognize that it's a gift of the Holy Spirit to the believer, and so they want to revel in that. They get a great rush. There's a great sensational experience out of the congregation speaking in tongues. And Paul says, it's chaotic, it's confusing, Fact is, when you have guests who aren't familiar with this coming in, possibly new believers or folks from another, another city, and they watch what's going on in your church, they think you've just lost your minds. And he almost suggests in some of his language, and they might be right. At least you're, he says toward the end, acting like children. And children aren't exactly discerning. And that's your problem. You're not being very discerning. So tongue seems to be this favored spiritual gift. At other times and in other places in the church, there are other things that the people of God sometimes want. They want something spectacular. They want something deeply moving, something that makes me feel something. And unfortunately in the West, we have often associated that, that felt response with worship. And I don't know that we shouldn't feel things when we worship, but we worship by encountering the revelation and the truth of God, which then causes us to respond in certain kinds of ways. And repentance and sorrowing and hum humbling oneself is clearly one of the desired outcomes here at the end of this passage. And that needs to be one of the desired outcomes of the assembly of God's people. Now the two key words here, the first one being tongues, the second one being prophecy, uh, have been uh, batted around and continue to be batted around. So what are they? And this is one of the more probably difficult definitions. So what is tongues? And I'm going to suggest to you uh, something probably fairly, uh, fairly obvious, that tongues is simply language not commonly understood by the audience. Okay, some people will say that tongue is always the language of an ethnic group from another geographical part or another ethnos. Some will say there are also heavenly languages, spirit languages. I'm not here to, to defend or define that. What we know is that whatever this communication is, it's a language that most people in the audience don't get, doesn't communicate unless someone steps in and says what he just said is this in our language. Somebody interprets. So that's tongues. Communication that's going on that is a language, whether earthy, human, spiritual, angelic, whatever, that most people just aren't getting. So that's tongues. Prophecy, 
uh, throughout Scripture seems to be used in two particular senses. One of them, a fairly narrow sense, in particularly the Old Testament prophet kind of context, where the Word of God is being written, and God speaks to a man of God. We call it revelation. That man of God speaks that word to the people of God, and that is called prophecy. It's not merely telling or forthtelling, foretelling events that are coming. It is the truth of God given to mankind, proclaimed. That was the task of the prophet. And where people were not getting the prophecy, the word of God, there was distress. They didn't have a word from God. We have a word from God. We see that throughout Scripture, and particularly now in the New Testament, the whole idea of prophecy begins to expand just a bit. Now, I don't know that it precludes that, but it clearly expands to say, we now have revelation from God. We hold it in our hands. It's been revealed in that new kind of initial kind of way, communication to people who then spoke it to God's people. At some point, it's written down and recorded, and we have it today in our hands. We have the revelation of God. And so when any person now takes the Word of God, teaches the Word of God, proclaims the Word of God, explains the Word of God, he is, in a sense, engaged in the work of prophecy. That is the work of prophecy. It's a, it's a broader sense than the more particular sense. So this idea of tongues versus prophecy really has to do with communication that is primarily unintelligible in the audience unless someone interprets versus taking what has already been revealed, disclosed and given to us by God, and seeking to rationally, thoughtfully explain and teach for the sake of building up those who hear, those who listen. Now, in the first part of this passage, he contrasts these two very simply and very clearly. And this helps us to understand a little bit what these tongues are versus what prophecy is. When it comes to tongues, he said, people who speak in tongues speak to God, not to man. So there is a language, there is this kind of tongue expression that goes Godward. God is fine with it. He understands it. The people around him don't get it. Now, this might be a rather crude illustration. I'll probably return to it multiple times. And again, I'm, in, in using an actual language illustration, I'm not eliminating the possibility that there is heavenly, spiritual, angelic language as well. may scarcely touch it, but I'm not going to eliminate that. But my probably most intense experience with uh, the linguistic divide was when I spent three weeks in Romania back uh, eight or nine years ago and spoke 55 times in a three-week time frame. And I, did, I knew almost nothing of the Romanian or Russian languages uh, of the audience that were present. So whenever I spoke, it was unintelligible to most of the people until someone standing beside me would translate or interpret that and say, here's what the guy just said. Okay, now I had, real no way, I had really no way of verifying that what he told them I said was the same thing I said. 
So there's a whole lot of kind of faith and trust and uh, either slowly developing mutual skepticism or confidence and relationship uh, because occasionally they look at you, what was that? Uh, are you sure? You sure that's what you wanted to say? Those, those kinds of things going on. Well, we also, in that series of conferences that we did, we had one song that we sang at every one of those conferences. And I could still sing it for you, at least a significant portion of it. I think God was actually honored as I learned that piece and sang it with my heart. I still don't have a clue what it means. My spirit worshiped God. I picked out a few words, and I got the general gist. This is about praising God for his plan of salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the general gist of it. What the exact words were, I don't know. So somehow my spirit, even in this use of language, did not particularly pass through my mind. It was still unintelligible, but I was speaking it. If I were to do that for you here, that would be exactly what the Apostle Paul said is kind of childish. Okay, so I'll refrain. I won't do that. Nobody here would be edified. You might be amused. You might say, wow, this guy speaks Romanian. And I might get a certain rush out of my use of the Romanian language. But nobody is edified. It doesn't pass through my mind, and it doesn't pass through your mind except as gibberish. And gibberish does not edify. And so the Apostle Paul says, when this kind of language uh, passion is going on, God may be, you may be talking to God, you're not talking to man. Man is not being built up. No one understands, he says, and you're uttering mysteries. So when you're speaking in tongues, you're speaking to God, he says, not to man. No one understands, you're uttering mysteries. What you're saying remains a mystery to the people around you. Now he says it may build up himself. So if I were to sing this, you know, and I, I've done it. I actually met a student from Romania uh, when I was at Faith Builders one time. And as I opened the class, I looked back to her and started singing this song to her. And her eyes just lit up. And I felt edified. <laughs> I, maybe my childishness. But I, I felt somewhat, you know, yeah, this is kind of, I don't know. You, you might know better. It might be called pride. It might be called a host of other things. It might be something narcissistic. But I personally felt somewhat built up. And maybe puffed up would be a better word. I'm not sure. But nobody else except the person to whom it communicated were edified in that experience. But can you imagine the excitement of a bunch of people doing that kind of thing, especially if it became rather ecstatic for some people? This would be quite a show going on if we all started doing this here this morning. And our guests from out of town would say, these people are crazy. We might personally feel somewhat edified. We might personally have a, a bit of a rush. But he says, there is limited value, almost none, unless someone actually then interprets or translates so that it can pass through the mind and be evaluated by the mind so that you can be built up in the process. Prophecy, on the other hand, he says, 
speaks to people. Prophecy speaks to people. And in speaking to people, it speaks for this purpose. It speaks to build up, to equip, to grow up, to cause to think well, to realign the thoughts of the mind into greater harmony with the thoughts of Jesus Christ, with the revelation of God. It's seeking to transform the mind, renew the mind by instructing the mind. It also speaks to people for encouragement, to give them a sense of renewal and consolation. And I, I've thought about this many times as a pastor. When we get together on a Sunday morning, I really have no way of knowing exactly in what frame of mind and what emotional state you come. Now, if I know you really well, a quick glance at your face, I can kind of tell which way it's tilting. But on any given week, people come together feeling despondent and despairing. Some, some come in here in desperate need of assistance and guidance for some specific challenge they face. Some are in deep sorrow. The Word of God when proclaimed, provides for all of those human needs by building up, by encouraging, and by bringing comfort. That's the value of revelation when it's proclaimed and can be understood. So Paul says when you prophesy, it speaks to people for upbuilding, it speaks to people for encouragement, it speaks to people for consolation, and it builds up the church. It grows it up. And it has great value because it builds up the church. So he makes it very clear that, the, that prophecy is superior to tongues when love is the test or the measuring stick. So if you recall last Sunday's sermon from 1 Corinthians 11, what does love do? It does not seek one's own. It seeks the other. Tongues, he's saying, is a more self-centered, seeking my communication with God, my sense of well-being, my sense of being Holy Spirit blessed, versus seeking the well-being of the other. And he says, when you gather together, gather for the well-being of the other, the upbuilding of the other. Love should inform you in that way. And so it is superior. But tongues also fails another test. In order to benefit the church, in order for the church to continue growing and being built up, there must be some kind of revelation. There must be some kind of knowledge. There must be some kind of prophecy or teaching. And the suggestion here is that even though we're born again, we're part of God's people, He's not finished with us. He has a lot more in store for us, and He wants to grow us up. He wants us to become something more than we presently are. And tongues doesn't meet that test. And the passage in Ephesians that Brother Caleb read points clearly to the work of people who are gifted to exercise those gifts to build up the body. And part of the task of building up is to equip members of the body to be builders in the body. And so this, this building up concept is very central to the community of God. Emotionally charged utterances, like tongues, that lack 
clear communication are also useless for that purpose. And he illustrates this in two particular ways. You have someone playing a flute or a harp. In order for that music to be understood and received and to have an aha moment, I know what he's playing. He actually has to play the precise notes. Which is why you would not want me playing a flute or a harp. You would say, that's gibberish. I don't understand it. It's unintelligible. And you see, music is either intelligible or unintelligible. And he's saying, unless there's the precise notational progression that the composer wrote, you're not going to know if it's Handel or Beethoven or any other composer. You don't know what the piece is. The guy's all over the map in his flute and his harp. And he's just missing it. A tune is not a tune unless it follows the composer's composition. Uh, I had a little experience myself the other Sunday. Down leading the children's assembly in the morning, I don't use a pitch instrument. So I kind of, in my mind, search for something, given the range of the song, that would be compatible to my morning voice and the children's range. Well, I started a song with a rather indistinct tone. I did a slide because I was changing my mind as I started the song as to where this song ought to start. And the children just kind of looked at me. <laughs> so that's not helpful. You can't sing with that. Okay, so I had to stop, get a clear tone, a clear starting point. And at that point, when there's clarity, we can join together. And we can worship God together. And so he says the same thing with a flute or a harp. You've got to get that clarity. You've got to get that uh, precise communication. If it's unidentifiable, because of this lack of clarity, no communication occurs. Or you could probably say what's communicated is not what's intended or desired to be communicated. You communicate incompetence and a host of other things. The second illustration is the bugle for battle. <laughs> and I've had limited exposure to this, but the bugle is still used in military contexts. And, and the taps are played. And certain series of tones mean you do certain things. And you do them now. But if the guy playing the bugle doesn't get the tones right, what are you going to do? You going to run to the dining hall or are you going to go to battle? Nobody knows. Requires precise communication. The signal that sends the soldiers to battle must be precise. Then you've got to hear them. It's got to pass through both minds precisely. When it does, you can get action. Action from the commander. That's exactly what he's hoping to communicate. And so when the church gathers, again, this is part of the, this is part of the task. We gather to hear the voice of the commander to be sent out into the world as his emissaries, his soldiers, his missionaries. And we get together and just wallow around in a bunch of gibberish. Even though we feel great when we leave, we don't have a great sense of direction when we go out. Except that we tend to want to feel good when we go out, too. So we try to resurrect the same set of emotions, but we have no guidance that has come with clarity from the commander so that we know how to go into action. Then he comes to kind of what I believe is the punchline. If the sounds you make in your assemblies are unintelligible, how can they be understood? You're just blowing hot air. 
You're speaking into the wind, he says. Speaking into the air. It's like the, the wasted punches of an athlete who has not trained. And again, it's the image Paul uses earlier in Corinthians. An athlete who is well-trained positions himself and waits for the precise moment, and when he delivers a punch, the punch is fully delivered to its target. People who are not trained, they're flailing around, just punching into midair, and they rarely hit their targets. And he says the very same thing is true here. You're just speaking into the air, blowing hot air. There's no action or interaction possible. Doubtless, these tongues have meaning. That's not the problem. It's just that we don't know what it is, unless someone interprets. But if that interpretation is not there, if meaning is not made possible, just don't do it in the assembly. And then he reaches in and says, you know, I really think what you want is the evidences of the Holy Spirit in your assemblies. I think that's what you want, and somehow you have gotten the impression that if the Holy Spirit is present, then languages, tongues, is the preeminent evidence. And he said, no. The preeminent evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is when prophecy takes place. The Word of God is unpacked and communicated. And as he says in the closing lines, it engages the mind and by implication the affections, the heart, calls to repentance, calls to sorrow, calls to realignment. Those are the results. So he says, strive, work hard to excel in building up the church. And the primary way in which you build up the church is through the prophetic ministry, the unpacking of the revelation of God. That's the main thing. So if you want a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, work hard at acquiring and polishing and caring for that gift. That's the main one in the assembly. It's the main one. Then he plays here in, the, in this next, next section, verses 13 through 19. The whole communicating in mind versus spirit. And I, I don't want to minimize the fact that the Christian's rebirth is a rebirth of spirit. God, by his Holy Spirit, rebirths our spirits. The very core of who we are is reborn. How does, he, how does he do that? Well, I think one of the primary ways is that we hear this message through the preaching of the Word. Romans 10 makes that quite clear. That's the primary way. But the Spirit of God does work in our spirit. And He transforms our spirit. And the Holy Spirit administers it. And often what he administers, this new birth, is something much greater than what we even have the ability to understand. It's transforming. 
It's the birth of an entirely new creature who loves God within our fallenness. And so, you know, the mind, we might say, is a part of that. But people whose minds are very weak know the power of God. But that doesn't necessarily enable them to nurture and build the church. The, the mind is the means by which that gets communicated. So he said, so I want to pray in the Spirit, but I want to pray with my mind also. So I want my spirit to be in deep, intimate communication with God, but I want my mind to be in communication with God as well. I want to come to understand. I want to think the thoughts of God as I am in communication with God. I'm not satisfied with just the spirit. I want the mind also. And I think he would say the other way around. I'm not interested in having just a head knowledge of God and tossing ideas around. I want my spirit, my affections, my core orientation to be toward God and in harmony with him as well. So when I pray, if I only pray in spirit, my mind remains unfruitful. But I want to pray with the spirit and with my mind. I want to sing. When I sing, I want to sing with, in, with spirit and with mind. And he summarizes it this way, so that others can participate and say, Amen! I agree. Let it be that way. If they say amen, and they don't understand what you've said, they've been rather foolish. If you don't say anything, they can't say amen. Now, incidentally, I think we kind of lack the amens anyhow, and we're all too timid to even boldly venture out and say amen. And uh, we'll have a conversation about that someday. But I think particularly in the, in the area of prayer, when we as a group pray together, someone is leading in prayer. Uh, I've been to parts of the world where it's very common that people participate in the prayer in such a way that there's a hearty and united amen at the end of a prayer that says, or at least has the option of saying, I was with you in that, brother, and I agree with you before God. Amen. We've prayed together. We didn't just leave you out there by yourself rattling on. We followed you in mind. We understood what you were saying, and we'll affirm that before God. We're part of this. Amen. But he says, if you're just pouring out gibberish, can't really do that. Can't really do that. He sums it up by saying, I'd rather have two seconds or three seconds, whatever the count here might be. I'd rather have three seconds of your time and give you five words that are fruitful than have two hours of your time and give you a great emotional display that you can't get. Five words versus 10,000 words. 10,000 words, that's a good two hours. Give me five, he said. Five words, three seconds. Five words, five seconds. That's the significance of understanding and communication. There's this rather difficult section, which I'm glad to see the clock's getting away. Gives me a reason not to spend too much time here. Uh, in which he breaks in then in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He comes with rather fatherly admonition at this point. And he says, 
The implication is you're being childish. Don't be childish and undeveloped in your ability to think, to judge, and discern. And I think as we study that passage, he's saying the way you're doing church, the way you're acting in your assemblies shows that you have not thoughtfully exercised discernment about how this impacts particularly now the unbeliever and the outsider, the guest. In spite of all their claims to having super knowledge that we had in the previous part of the book, to having this super wisdom that they claim to have, in spite of all of that, in spite of all those claims, you're lacking the discernment of an adult. You're acting like children. You're so enamored by the gift of tongues and its public display, you're not able to see the implications of it to those who gather from outside. However, I want you to be babes, infants, when it comes to evil. And, and this has caused some trouble. Be infants in evil. I think he's saying that the use of tongues, the way they're using it, is not according to its nature. It's such a dis disuse or distortion of what God intended for it to be that the way you're using it is evil. It's, 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 a, it's a twistedness of God's good gift. So it's the gift that has become distorted. So to use tongues in this way for public display and self-gratification is problematic. That's not what it's for. It's not why the Holy Spirit gives this gift. In fact, the present use of it, as you're using it in Corinth, actually subverts the purpose of edification, building up, by rebuffing unbelievers who come in and observe what's happening, and they say, these people are out of their minds. Haven't you folks woken up to the fact that this is not serving God's purposes? This is a problem. That's being childish. And then he makes his case further by illustrating from an Old Testament passage, and it's a loose quotation uh, from, I think, the book of Isaiah, in which God threatens to send, he threatens Judah, who is rebelling against him, he threatens to send in barbarians into Judah. These were the Assyrians, and the Assyrians... Uh, when you see the term barbarian in the New Testament, it's, it actually is a linguistic play on gibberish. Sounds like bar, 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 bar. And so it's incomprehensible, unintelligible communication. And so they're called the barbarians, the people who mumble and mutter. They don't have a sophisticated language. And compared to Greek, it's probably the most sophisticated the most thoroughly nuanced language ever in history, it was they couldn't communicate complex thoughts at all. They were stuck with kind of primitive grunts and groans. That was the comparison they made. But God is going to send those, those barbarians into Judah, the people of God, because the people of God are not obeying God. And when they get there, bar, bar, barring, Judah's still not going to get it. They're still not going to repent and turn to God. So the gift of tongues, he said, that language thing is not meant for believers. It's meant for unbelievers. 
the net effect is negative. The unintelligible languages, the men of Judah remain unbelieving when the barbarians come. The Corinthian believers who come in and hear this gibberish also remain unbelieving when confronted with the muttering and mumbling of tongues. He says it's not for unbelievers. The problem is he also says later there's a sign. It's a sign to unbelievers. Okay, and I think here's the issue. The fact that God speaks through barbarians, the sign is the issue. It's not the speaking in tongues. That, that confrontation is the sign. So tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. And typically it's a sign of God's displeasure and judgment. Prophecy is a sign for believers, not for unbelievers. And sign here again is the key phrase. It's a sign. Believers are positioned in faith to hear prophecy, to receive prophecy. Unbelievers are positioned to reject prophecy and oppose it. But you're not left passive or just scornful, just scornful. So in the, in the conclusion of this section, when people are gathered together, you're speaking in tongues. Outsiders or those not familiar with the practice and unbelievers come in. Their conclusion is you're out of your minds. Contrast that to exhortation, prophecy, God's revelation intelligibly communicated. There's a possibility that the unbelievers will be convicted, called to account. The Word of God penetrates their resistant hearts, and they see that that revelation describes them deeply in their hearts. They're called to account. They repent. They fall on their faces, and they worship God, and they declare God is in this place. However you understand these spiritual gifts, in the assembly, it's quite clear that communication, whether in prayer, in song, or in speaking, must be clear, must be rooted in revelation, must be the proclamation and communication of truth that passes through the mind, is thoughtful, can be received by the mind, and the heart of man can be engaged in that process. It must be done so people can be edified and built up. Now, we live in this era where people go to worship seeking experiences, something that gives them a buzz or something that makes them feel ecstatic, exuberant, or a certain kind of rush. And when they have it, they feel they've worshiped. In these contexts, certain criteria become incredibly important. Certain felt responses begin to define worship, whether or not it's been experienced. And I think we encounter this also from worship leaders who feel deeply certain things and try to sway that feeling onto people rather than engaging people with clear communication. The task is to become excellent, to develop the skills needed to communicate clearly so that it can be received through the mind. When this occurs, the heart does respond. And it responds appropriately to the message. And we are confronted with the truth of God. That's why we gather. We gather to encounter what God has said and to let it soak in, to convict us, to build us up, to encourage us, to console us. But ultimately that the body of Christ 
can be built. The Lord's Supper was in a similar state of disrepair. Their worship is in a similar state of disrepair. And Paul is providing this corrective. It shouldn't surprise us that the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to be communicated in that way. With words. Telling the historical story. Proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God. That this man, Jesus, went to the cross and in his body bore our sins. So that by faith in him, we too can be reborn, cleansed from our sins, and be a part of what God is doing in the world through the kingdom of Christ. That message needs to be spoken clearly. And when it is spoken by the Spirit of God, through the mind, engaging the mind, hearts are restored. And God renews the Spirit by His Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do long to know your truth and confess that we are somewhat weak in our ability to understand. Would you aid us by your Holy Spirit, but also open our minds and help us to be willing to develop the disciplines of communicating well, listening well, thinking well, understanding well, so that together we can be built up through the proclamation of your word. Guide us in our worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I have asked two brothers here to respond just briefly.